We're in Matthew chapter 21, looking at verses 12 to 17. Matthew writes, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, And the children who were shouting in the temple, saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. This is the same day as the triumphant entry, which uh, we skipped a couple of weeks ago. We'll be picking that up on Palm Sunday, April 2nd. Jesus had entered the temple. He, he, in a sense, rolled up his sleeves. He had put his strength and his power and righteousness on display. There were people there who were abusing the temple, changing money and selling animals. We, We addressed those words last week. I read them today because they're, they're part of the same moment. They're part of the same passage. The, the same Jesus that drove them out with righteous fury, righteous anger, was then immediately pro- approached by the, the lame and the blind who came to him for mercy, who came to him for healing, and he healed them. You know, Matthew and and the other disciples had been with Jesus for somewhere between two and three years. Jesus' ministry seems to have spanned four Passovers, which would be three years. He didn't come out of the desert with 12 disciples. He called them during that first year. So we don't know how many months it was, but it was somewhere between two and three years. They had heard everything Jesus had taught. They'd heard it in depth. They'd heard it in detail. And then they, they had this, this benefit of having how many countless private conversations with him, maybe in the evenings in a home or the evenings in, by a campfire as they were on the road about what he had taught. They had seen the miracles that he had performed. And Jesus came out of the desert ready to do those miracles. Matthew chapter 4 says that at the very commencement of his ministry, he went through out Galilee healing and casting out demons and doing all kinds of things. And he does those things till the very end of his ministry. In fact, the the night of his arrest, you remember in John chapter uh, 13, 14, 15, and 16 is the upper room discourse. They share in the Passover. He begins to teach them. And then at the end of chapter 14, he says, arise, let us go from here. In chapter 15, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches, right? But the, the thinking is that as they were moving out of the lower city through the temple to go to the Mount of Olives, they would have, the disciples would have looked up at the temple, which was carved with grapevines and bunches of grapes to represent what should have been the fruitfulness of Israel. And Jesus, listening to them talking about this, says, I'm the true vine. You are the true branches. 
So he teaches literally to the end of his life. At his arrest in the garden, Peter uh, drew a sword and cut the ear off of Malchus, the, the servant of the high priest, slave of the high priest, and Jesus healed him. At the very end of his ministry, Jesus continues to heal. Matthew and the others had heard every word. They'd seen every, every miracle. Sometimes skeptics, critics, will, will dismiss the Gospels. They'll say, well, don't you know how human memory works? I mean, these things weren't written down for 20 or 30 years after the events. But Jesus didn't deliver the Sermon on the Mount one time. <clears throat> it was, I think, his regular pattern of teaching. He taught that everywhere he went. They heard it dozens and dozens of times. And then they had private lectures going into the depths of those things. And they had seen these miracles over and over again. You put yourself in the position of Matthew decades after the event, as these men age, James is already dead, having been put to death by Herod Antipas, or Herod Agrippa, rather. They're aging. The end is coming for them. They know that, and they begin to write down the Gospels, and Matthew looks back at these healings on this day, and what does he call them? Verse 15, he calls them marvelous things. 20 years after, 30 years after the fact, and having seen thousands of healings, Matthew says these on this day were still marvelous. And they're marvelous to me today as I write this Gospel. He remains amazed at what Jesus did. His mind is still boggled at those things. Jesus is strong, unstoppable, cleansed the temple of the abusers, and then in the, in the next moment is the tender shepherd, the good shepherd, the great physician, and he gently and tenderly and kindly receives these people in need. Nobody has to say to Jesus, maybe you ought to calm down, go, go walk a little bit, catch your, you know, regather your thoughts. You're, you're kind of getting out of control here. His, his anger and wrath at those who abused the temple was not softened by his love for those in need. And his love for those in need was not diluted by his anger at the wicked. The children then cry out we see what they cry out in in verse 15 the children were shouting in the temple saying hosanna to the son of david we'll come back to the leaders this is what motivates the leaders attitude hosanna means help i pray or save i pray that's what it literally means but it had become kind of a formula it had become a, a kind of a catchphrase like we would use praise the lord today or amen, or hallelujah. We don't, we don't mean if somebody gives you wonderful news and we say praise the Lord, we're not commanding them to praise the Lord. By praise the Lord, we mean may God be praised, right? Hosanna meant that. Hosanna meant that. And as Jesus has cleansed the temple of the wicked, as he has healed those in need, the children pick up the cry of their parents on the road that they had heard just in, what, an hour before? Hosanna to the son of David. 
It's important that we understand that Jesus' works for which they are giving praise are not just random works of kindness. He didn't do them just because it seemed good to do at the time. They're fulfillment of the scriptures. Isaiah chapter 35 Verses 5 and 6 says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. But those verses exist within a context. I frequently talk about context because it's so easy for us to ignore context. Those verses exist in a context. Here's the context of Isaiah 35. It all has to do with the Messiah coming. The wilderness and the desert will be delighted. And the Arabah, that is the desert, will rejoice and flourish like the crocus. It will flourish profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon, they will see the glory of Yahweh, the majesty of our God. So strengthen limp hands and give courage to the knees of the stumbling. Say to those with an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. The recompense of God will come, but he will save you. God comes with judgment. He comes with salvation. Isn't that what we just saw? Jesus clears the temple. And then he heals the needy. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. These are the very miracles that Jesus performed. For waters will break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. Then the scorched land will become a and the thirsty ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals its resting place grass becomes reeds and rushes reeds and rushes grow in the water and a roadway will be there a highway and it will be called the highway of holiness the unclean will not pass by on it but it will be for him who walks in that way, and ignorant fools will not wander on it. By the way, the biblical title for Christianity in the book of Acts is the way. That Greek word that they translate way is hodos. It means road, a highway of holiness, a road of righteousness. And then he says, no lion will be there, nor will any vicious beast go up on it. These will not be found there. The way of salvation leads through dangerous territory, but the way is not dangerous. Itself is the way of life and death, not death. But the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of Yahweh will return. And come with joyful shouting to Zion, with everlasting gladness upon their heads. They will attain delight and gladness and sorrow and sighing will flee away. Now, why read all of that? Well, it's because of the way that theologians so often look at the end times. There's three primary end times views. There's premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. Of those three views, only premillennialism says every prophecy of scripture will be fulfilled in time and space and history. 
You see, postmillennialism and amillennialism both say at a certain point the fulfillments become spiritual, not literal. Well, what we've just seen here is a picture of the land itself being revitalized. That has not yet happened. Should we say that that's merely spiritual, that that's merely a figure of speech when the healings were literal? Isn't the literal healings of the blind and the lame and the deaf and the mute a sign that the other fulfillments will be literal? Not any less spiritual. Jesus actually healed. The other things are going to be fulfilled as well. Isaiah 53 says that he was smitten by God. He was pierced through for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. Was he only figuratively pierced? He was crucified. That's why I'm premillennial. That's why I'm convinced of that. I can't answer every argument that the other sides have. I don't know how to fill every gap. I simply believe that barring any other, any other revelation from God or fulfillment, that when these things happen, they'll be fulfilled in time and space. How that looks, I don't know. It's important to us because of what these children are saying. What they're shouting out is not theoretical. It's actual. Blind people have been healed. Lame people have been healed. And these children are shouting out, why weren't their parents? I don't know. Maybe it's okay to shout out like that out on the roadway, but not in the temple. I I don't know. But the children are shouting out. Now, the chief priests and scribes have a rhetorical question for Jesus. They, when they see the marvelous things that Jesus did, which is the cleansing of the temple and the healings, it's all part of one passage, and they hear and see the children shouting in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they become indignant. It's, we should just be shocked at that, indignant. Indignant is not just angry, indignant is insulted. Indignant is is uh, offended anger, insulted anger. They said to Jesus, do you hear what these children are saying? Matthew begins with, that, with the word but, but the chief priests and the scribes, and that, that's just a terrible word right there. But is a terrible word right here. It damns these men. It shows them to be enemies who stand in opposition to Christ. The children are shouting out biblical praises to the Messiah. And the chief priests of everybody in Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, should have recognized him. They should have been the first in line. They were the ones with insights. And they stand in the greatest opposition as committed enemies of Yahweh who are devoted to their sin and unbelief. The chief priests were all of the sect, religious sect of the Sadducees. (coughs) The Sadducees were materialists. They denied the existence of a supernatural world. They denied angels. They denied demons. They denied that there is any human existence after death, whether in heaven or hell. They denied that God exercises any 
providence at all. They denied all miraculous events. They denied the resurrection of the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. It's not a great joke, but it's a joke. Okay, so with, with all the other things that they denied, I have to wonder if at least some of them secretly denied God himself. They were utter materialists. As far as they were concerned, the value of the temple was cultural, not spiritual. Israel was defined by the temple and what happened there. It's what made Israel Israel. It's what made Jews Jews without the temple without the priesthood, without the ritualistic sacrifices, which have no meaning beyond cultural identification, then there is no Israel. The real issue is that these men's power and wealth was wrapped up in maintaining the temple. That's why they're indignant. They're insulted. See, they're deeply afraid. Jesus has enormous influence with people, and now even children are shouting his name. What if Jesus turns around having cleared the temple? What if he, and then healed on his own without the temple? What if he says, forget this place, follow me? What happens to them? They denied everything the temple stood for, but they deeply needed people to believe in the temple and what it stood for. In John 11, the chief priests and the Pharisees, they, they meet together to talk about this Jesus problem. Therefore, it says, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the Sanhedrin together, the Sanhedrin being the ruling council, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man, Jesus, is doing many signs. And I love this. If we let him go on like this, if you let him go on like this, he cleared the temple and you didn't stop him. He raised Lazarus from the dead. You can go see Lazarus. He's still in Bethany. If you, if you let him go on, if we let him go on like this, all will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. See, they're not opposed to Jesus because of doctrine or for spiritual reasons. They're opposed to him because he threatens their livelihood. The high priest had an idea. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. Nor do you take into account that it is better for you that one man should die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. And then John says, now he did not say this from himself, but being high priest that year, he prophesied unknowingly and unwillingly that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only but in order that he might gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. The high priest of Israel, who denied the miraculous, who denied the spiritual world, prophesied against his own will that God was going to save sinners through Jesus, and not just sinners, but Gentiles. Their solution was to have Jesus put to death, but it didn't stop him because he rose from the dead. And in fact, he used their anger against themselves, against themselves. In Acts chapter 4, after they'd been threatened, the apostles pray to the Lord, look down and see these men in this city in Jerusalem, the Gentiles and 
Herod and Pontius Pilate and the Jews all did what your hand had predestined would occur. They thought that they were rebelling. They thought that they were taking control, but they were simply instruments in the hands of God to bring about the sacrifice of the Savior, of the Lamb of God. Do you hear what these children are saying? Yeah, it's a rhetorical question. Everybody could hear what the children were saying. The implication is that Jesus should do something to shut them up. He asks a question of his own. First he answers, yes, I I hear, yeah, I do. And then he asks a question of them. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise for yourself? See, Jesus recognizes that scripture is being fulfilled. He recognizes it not just because it's kind of an accidental thing, but because he had purposed this. He quotes from Psalm 8, verse 2. See, of all the days of Israel and all the days of Israel's life, this was a day to shout out praises. This was the day when the Savior, the King of Israel, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, the Son of David, came in as scripture said he would do. The question is not why were the children shouting out. The question was why wasn't everyone else shouting out? Where were they? It's interesting that that Jesus quotes out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you, God, have prepared praise for yourself. Who are they praising? They don't say, Hosanna to the Lord. They don't say, Hosanna to Yahweh. They say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Jesus takes that quote and he says, I prepared that praise for myself. Before creation ever happened, I determined what these children would do this day. We understand why they were shouting out in praise. We don't understand why their parents weren't. This is the, the, the day that culminates Jesus' public ministry and, and miracles. He walked into Jerusalem just as the Father said he would. He took possession of the temple. This is my Father's house. By calling it his Father's house, he claimed it as his house. It was a house of prayer, and the blind and the lame had their prayers answered. If the Bible was a book written by men or if it was a movie, you know what had happened here. Everybody would break down weeping at Jesus' feet, and they'd, they, they would trust him, and they'd follow him. And, and maybe, I mean, if you wanted to create a third act, the, the chief priests and the scribes would go out muttering under their breath, but everybody would have Jesus up on their shoulders, and they'd be parading him around. And maybe that'd be the end of the movie. Play the music, roll the credits. But instead, we, we read really sad words. And he left them. He left them. He went out to Bethany and spent the night there. Jesus left them there. He didn't try to persuade them any further. He didn't try to win them. He didn't try to convince them any further that he was the Messiah. He's openly taught for three years. There's been no secret to his teachings. He's performed countless miracles, a superabundance of evidence of his divine nature and power. And anybody could have come to see him. 
The chief priests have been mentioned a couple of times in Matthew before this. This is the first time that they've actually appeared. And they appear in the temple, not just in Jerusalem, in the temple. They are holed up in their den. And Jesus goes right in there. And he does two things. One in a sense negative and one in a sense positive to prompt a response. He clears the temple. And then he exercises the power of God to heal and restore. And he does it right in front of them. And all they can do is complain. A couple of weeks ago when when we were talking about the tabernacle, I, I made the point that that original tabernacle, the glory of God settled in it so that Moses couldn't go in. The cloud filled the place, the first temple. <coughs> when they dedicated the first temple, the cloud settled upon it and the glory of God so filled the place that the priest could not enter. But then because of Israel's idolatry in, uh, in the, the, the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes the glory leaving the temple, settling over the threshold of the house instead of the Holy of Holies, and then leaving the threshold and going to the gate and, and never going back. They, they rededicated the, seven, the second temple, Ezra's temple, it could be called Zerubbabel's temple. They rededicated it, but then it was just business as usual. There's no sign that, that the glory of God entered again. It was just an empty shell. It was a memorial, I said. Jesus leaves these dead men in that dead place. The great irony is that in Luke chapter 19... As Jesus enters, as he approaches Jerusalem on that, that day of the triumphant entry, he saw the city and he cried over it, saying, If you knew in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side and they will level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. If we don't do something about this man, the Romans will come and take our place and our nation. And because they did something about that man, the Romans came and took their place and their nation. It had to be that way. Jesus had to be betrayed. It had to be that way. But it's a tragedy at the same time. As we bring this home, if the Holy Spirit has opened your eyes to the truth of, truth of the gospel, you have received an indescribable gift. Indescribable. Your heart has cried out hosannas and praise the Lord's and hallelujahs and amens and shouts of praise and worship. Now, people come from different traditions. We come from different backgrounds. Some of those backgrounds say, hey, get on your feet and raise your hands. Some of those backgrounds say, hit your knees. I'm not talking about what you do with your hands or your body. I'm talking about what happens in your heart as you know and live in Christ. Your soul has been touched by your Lord and Savior. You've tasted of his peace and comfort. You've caught the aroma of life that 
that just exudes from the scriptures and from his people. Frail as we are. And even as you trudge along in the valley of death in those shadows, you, you keep looking ahead to the horizon and you keep seeing the flickers of the light of life. And that draws you. Hope keeps swelling in your heart. It keeps bouncing around inside of you. Surrounded by other things, surrounded by fear, surrounded by discouragement at times. But the weighty thing, the permanent thing, the unchangeable, unbreakable thing is the hope you've been given in Christ. You weren't convinced by the miraculous works of Jesus. You haven't seen any. You weren't convinced by hearing his voice echo in the hills of of Galilee or in the walls of the temple. You have not heard him. You've only had recourse to, to weak, frail, foolish people like me who stand up in front of you week after week and say, this is a book that means more than anything else because God has spoken to us. You have less reason to believe than anybody in scripture. And yet Jesus says, because you've believed without seeing, there's a blessing that belongs to you. See, God has done something wonderful and miraculous in your heart. You became convinced by the spirit of God that Jesus actually said and did these wonderful things. And you go to the scripture now and your heart swells. And there are times, not every time, but there are times that you read the word and it's like the ink is still wet. This is still true. He's talking about me. I've I've had a few moments in in preaching where somebody has come up after a, a sermon and said to me, why were you talking about me? Like, I don't even know you. Obviously, the Spirit of God is doing something within us in those times. See, these things are not just history, they're reality. Matthew looks back 20 or 30 years, and his mind boggles at these things. And if you and I begin to think about it, if we don't just let the words slip under our eyes, but we stop, our hearts will marvel at what Jesus did and who he is. You've been given a down payment of the Holy Spirit, as Ephesians 1 says. Not the fullness of the inheritance that will come one day. But your faith and your hope in Christ is a pledge of the reality. That the fullness is coming. In the book, The Robe, by Lloyd Douglas, it's a fantastic book. Don't watch the movie. The movie's awful. It is an awful movie. They changed the story. It's just an ugly movie. But the book is really, really interesting. The protagonist is the Roman tribune who orders the crucifixion of Jesus, who carries it out. And then he's stricken by that. And all of a sudden, he's consumed by the need to understand who this Jesus was. So he goes back to Israel. And he he makes the acquaintance of one of Jesus' outer circle disciples. Doesn't tell him who he is or why he's interested he just asks him to take him up into Galilee and to introduce him to people. And as the, as, as the book is, is, goes, the, there's a point as they're walking along the road where this protagonist, Marcellus, realizes that this man, every time they come over the crest of a hill, it's like he's looking for somebody. It's like he expects somebody to be there. 
And he doesn't hammer the point. He, it's a really well-written statement. It sets you up perfectly. You know exactly what's happening, but, but he doesn't over-polish it. But isn't that what we have as Christians? We have this belief that if Jesus came right now, we wouldn't be surprised. We'd be stunned. Once we picked ourselves up just from the glory of the event, but we wouldn't be surprised. Because we expect him all the time. Now, most people in our world can't imagine what you hope for. They don't get it. They don't understand it. And and the truth is, we can't understand why they don't hope for those things. It's so real to me. It's so actual to me. I don't understand how, how people go through life not knowing who Jesus is and what he came to do. I have an easier time understanding his enemies, the ones who know he existed but hate him. I have an easier time understanding that than people who are just clueless. I don't get it. Paul writes in Romans 15.3, a benediction. May the God of hope personalizing it for us may the god of hope fill us with all joy and peace in believing so that we will abound in hope by the power of the holy spirit that's our prayer for those who don't know the lord may the god of hope grant them joy and peace in believing so that they can have hope so that they can have an anchor so that in that valley of darkness they can see that light on the horizon up on that cliff edge and know that's where I'm going. That's where I'm heading. Let's dare to ask the God of hope to give us joy and peace in believing. Our own sin, our own flesh, the devil around us, the world beats down on us all the time. Most Christians I know are very familiar with the voice that says, who are you to say you're a Christian? Who are you to say you know the way? I'm nobody. Christ is everything. And I can't explain the hope he's given me, but it's there. It won't quit. It won't stop. It's like the biggest magnet in the world that keeps drawing me toward him. As much as I turn to other things, as much as I fail to turn to him, I'm pulled by that hope. So let's dare to ask the God of hope that he would give us and those who don't know him hope and fill us with all joy and peace and believing so that we will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's be praying for those who don't know the Lord and looking for opportunities such as the Lord will provide to share our hope. Father, I thank you for your word. I ask that you would bless this time, keep it in our remembrance, that the hope that we have in you would would overflow in our hearts and perhaps in our mouths as well. That those who don't know you would be granted that same hope, that same joy and peace in believing. 
to have an abounding hope that looks for the fulfillment, that looks for the fulfillment in, in time and space in history. <coughs> a fulfillment that's not figurative. A fulfillment that isn't just spiritualized or analogized, but actually takes place as you have promised. We ask that you would shake the mountains of unbelief in the hearts of the people that we know and love. That their confidence would be in you. That you would have the same mercy on them you've had on us. And Lord, we give you thanks for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.